episode 364, A Way to Think About Transforming the Healthcare Industry. Today, I speak with David Muehlstein. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, we're going to zoom out and look at the entire healthcare industry. I am very confident that you know a lot about the healthcare industry and its basic stats. It's huge. The healthcare industry is approaching the $4 trillion mark, and it employs more people than any other industry in 47 states. Think about that momentarily. More people work in healthcare than in any other industry in every state except for Wisconsin, Indiana, and Nevada. We could get into, but we won't, how many of the gigantic consolidated incumbents in the healthcare industry are either for profits, sporting very happy shareholders or investors. Then, of course, we have our, in air quotes, nonprofits, especially mega nonprofit health systems who enjoy some pretty healthy margins. While at the same time, these health systems in general offer up some fairly embarrassing levels of charity care, considering the amount of taxes they deprive their communities of. You also are probably eminently familiar with various ways that have been cited to transform the industry. So the usual suspects here are, of course, changing incentives, offering true value-based care contracts, for example, and then the whole creative destruction angle, wherein upstarts come in with far superior products and services, a la the whole Kodak case study, or what happened to Sears and Kmart. Maybe this will happen in healthcare. Other ideas to transform the healthcare industry include employers harnessing the latent power that they have in some markets, and then of course getting rid of middle people for sure. Or we could go single payer, of course. That's another suggestion solution. Today's conversation is a rather holistic look at all of this. I dig into this with David Muehlstein, who is Chief Research and Innovation Officer at Health Management Association, HMA. And when I say dig in, I mean dig in. David made some very intriguing points that I had not heard before, actually, and I've heard a lot in my time, so that's saying something. I'm going to tick off a couple of them, but I don't do them justice, so you'll need to listen to David explain them and give context. First off, what's the problem with healthcare being a $4 trillion industry in this country? I mean, almost 20% of GDP and employing more people than any other industry in 47 of our 50 states. There are other big sectors in our economy, after all, that get lots of love. Why is big healthcare bad and these other sectors good in economic terms when we talk about employment? That's one thing I wanted to know. And David made a point that maybe is self-evident for some, but is worth reiterating in all cases. The government pays for roughly half of healthcare, And from a consumer or just American standpoint, it kind of sucks. I mean, I don't see many Insta selfies of someone rocking their brand new insurance premium. Dollars going to healthcare or health insurance are not going to consumer goods. And that matters economically as well as retail therapy e. For all of you econ geeks out there, this industry offers no marginal utility. Here's a second interesting point. Just changing incentives might not be enough. Organizations downstream and upstream need to be on board with the spirit and objective of the incentive change. If they are not, then it's game on for every CFO and their revenue cycle managers to finagle how to find the loophole that enables revenue maximization. Revenue maximization, period. Revenue, the end. 
Which brings me to another interesting point. Boards of directors, CEOs, people with fiduciary responsibility, they need to know thyself and consider their actual customer. And spoiler alert, 99% of the time, that actual customer is not patient, no matter what is printed in big letters on the front door. No change can really happen unless those who serve in the upper echelons of these businesses get really real about where their bread is buttered. Organizations are built to serve their customer after all. So if a patient isn't identified as a customer, the organization at its very core is going to have a lot of difficulty serving the patient. So now what? If I want my organization to move forward in a way that is more patient-centric and less financially toxic, say, what should do? Here's thoughts after chatting with David Muelstein today. Four main steps. Number one, as I just said, you got to get your current state unemotionally understood. For reals. Who is the organization built to serve? So first step is being introspective in the harsh light of day. Step two, consider the timeline of your existential demise. (laughs) The show is so uplifting. But unless organizations really think out five years, 10 years, 25 years, and really internalize the existential threat, it's going to be hard to motivate change. I see this all the time. So do you. Inertia is real. Nobody does anything until they absolutely have to. Sidebar. But if you need an eventual demise to bring up at your next strategy meeting, I just saw a paper come out saying that by 2030, cost-related non-adherence could become a leading cause of death in the United States, surpassing diabetes, influenza, pneumonia, and kidney disease. This is as per a study by the nonprofit West Health Policy Center and Exenda. Non-adherence. What does that mean? It means the patient is not doing their treatment. They are not going to the doctor or getting medical care or not taking their drugs. Meaning no one is making money off of all of those patients, especially when they're dead. This is where the rubber meets all of those excess profits everybody is reaping in the short term. I hope that was helpful for anybody trying to motivate change today. Step three. Consider what legacy we want to leave behind. Do we all want to wait until we're forced to change to do so? Is this the healthcare system we want to leave behind to children and grandchildren? I mean, anybody who's got a loved one in the hospital with anything complex, fighting for their own patient records on the phone for hours a day with insurance carriers while care is delayed with possibly devastating consequences. The family having to coordinate care and cross their fingers and pray they don't get a ridiculous bill for services that may or may not have been rendered and then use retirement savings to pay for them. If anyone is not looking to be a party to all of this, then let's think about our strategy moving forward and how it will change to meet the future we want to see. Okay, so then lastly, step four is on to the evolve and change approaches. How exactly do you think about doing that? According to David Muelstein, you can repair your current organization or remodel or rebuild. It sounds daunting, but as Dr. Eric Bricker said on our recent interview together, and as others have said as well, this is already happening in some regions across the country. There are pockets with real transformation. These changes are on the edges right now, but they're showing that this can and is possible. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. David Muelstein, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me on. So we all know the healthcare industry in this country is huge, ginormous. 
Is there any negative consequence to all of this hugeness? Like, does it matter that the industry that employs the most people in every single state, save three, is the healthcare industry? So it's a challenge. And it's a competing priorities when you look at it from a policy and political perspective. So if you are a member of Congress, you want to increase jobs, you want to see the economy flourish, and you want to see a lot of growth. And that's great. One of the few things that are bipartisan across the country, we like to see jobs. The challenge is healthcare is different than manufacturing or retail or professional services in that half of it or so is paid for by the federal government or state governments or local governments. And so while we've seen an increase of healthcare in terms of the employment, we're also paying for it through our taxes and through deficit spending. So is the inference there that we really should be right-sizing healthcare spend as a percentage of our GDP? That's my belief. I think that we need to figure out what is an appropriate amount to spend on healthcare and get to that level. When you say reducing the percentage of GDP, what you're not saying necessarily is don't provide health care for people, certain people. What you're saying is let's just get the amount of value that we should be for the dollars that we're spending. Absolutely. That's what we're really trying to get at is, is how do we not necessarily decrease the volume of care? Because relative to other countries, we actually use not very much healthcare. We go to the doctor less often. We go to the hospital much less often. We use uh, less long-term care than many other countries. What we do, though, is we pay significantly more for the care that we receive. That's the pricing issue of healthcare that a lot of people don't like to talk about. But when you look at international comparisons, if you compare us to many European nations for the exact same procedure or the exact same drug, we may spend twice as much, up to six times as much as other developed nations for the exact same procedure. It's really kicking us in the teeth is a nice way to put it. Yeah, as they say, it's the price is stupid. That's a Yui Reinhardt quote, right? Exactly. But here's the good news. One of the things your team has said that the U.S. could feasibly reduce its spend to 12% of GDP by 2050 if healthcare costs grow 1.3% less than the growth of overall GDP. So first of all, is that accurate? And then second of all, how do we get there? Yeah, that's the challenge. So historically, healthcare costs have grown about 1.7% higher than GDP. And that's been going on on average for the last 70 years. So a very long time that we've seen healthcare costs just kind of grow. If inflation goes up by 3%, then healthcare is at 4.7%, just a little bit higher. So we kind of need to reverse that. Two ways when you look at this, you can approach it. One is reducing the price that we're spending on healthcare. That's really hard in the short term. A second one is we can lower the price increase of what we're spending on healthcare over time. And I think that we can do that. On the other side of the equation, you could also focus on growing the economy faster and just trying to create it so that healthcare is a smaller percentage of the total pool. And I think both of those things need to happen. We need to focus on significantly slowing the growth of the price of healthcare. And we also need to grow the economy faster. And this, I think, is where things get sticky, as you just mentioned, because if we have healthcare being the biggest industry in all states, save three, with lots of political power there, and every time there's a conversation about fee-for-service rates, it is a kerfuffle of the highest order when anyone talks about reducing the rate of increase. 
Exactly. So an example of this is going back to 1997. When the United States saw this problem, we said we need to lower the, how much we're spending on healthcare because it's growing much faster than the broader economy. And so we passed a law called the Sustainable Growth Rate. And the idea was that if the price of healthcare, at least from the Medicare spending of healthcare, grew faster than the general economy, then we were going to lower the price or how much we were going to pay for healthcare. So it was just say, let's keep it lockstep basically with the economy. And this worked great for the first few years because the economy was growing very, very fast. This was during the dot-com boom. But in 2000, 2001, when we started to have a recession and healthcare now is growing faster than the economy, we had to cut prices. I think it was 2001, 2002. The next year, the economy also wasn't doing stellar and healthcare costs were going up. And so they needed to cut prices again. But this time around, people knew it was coming on. And so physician societies talked with their members of Congress. And so they said, we're not going to cut prices this year. They kicked it off a year. And so there was another doc fix. And they ultimately passed 17 of these doc fixes always kicking the can down the road and then completely repealed it in 2015. And that's why it's so hard from a governmental side to drive it down because you go and you argue and say, if you lower how much you pay us, we're going to cut jobs. That's true. It also may be necessary to lower how much we spend on healthcare. So that's the challenge that we really grapple with. It's going to be really interesting at this exact moment in time where there is such a huge outflow of individuals who are working for these health systems, i.e. the staffing crisis, whether that political power shifts in any way. It will be. One of the things that we've seen, though, time and again, is that there is a very compelling argument that people make when there are cost cuts. They say, we're also going to see a drop in quality. And so then the doctors are talking to their patients who are then calling their members of Congress and saying, we can't lower prices legislatively. Well, also employers, you know, Team Health just got sued by a bunch of employers. So maybe it's there's true. mounting pressure from other directions. Are you optimistic? I like, I like to think so, but I, I'm also skeptical of that because there have been similar pressures for a very long time that haven't led to the point where we're really saying we need to force people to move to a lower price point. And that's just why it's really hard to do legislatively. There are alternatives, though. The alternative is to try to do it from a business model. Use an analogy here and looking at, at retail. If you go back to 1990, the three largest retailers in the United States were Sears, Kmart, and Walmart. Fast forward to today, and Sears and Kmart merged and then went through bankruptcy and have closed most of their stores, if not all of their stores. Meanwhile, Walmart has become the largest retailer, and now we see companies like Amazon and Target and others that have also seen significant growth that weren't, either didn't exist or weren't on the radar back 30 years ago. What you'd say is that the downfall of Sears and Kmart was not a legislative or regulatory action. It was death by a series of very small cuts over many years where they just lost out in the marketplace. And so if you have new entrants that come in and start competing in healthcare, where they are providing the same level of care or a greater level of care at a lower price point, then all of the entrenched actors, they can't go and say, we need to get paid more because we're getting beat by somebody who's doing better care at a lower price. They're just going to have to compete. They're going to have to change themselves or lose out in that competitive marketplace. It would almost need to be whole regions that are transforming simultaneously. I mean, we all know about the sort of weird symbiotic relationship that insurance companies have with certain dominant provider organizations in areas. So if you have consolidated insurance options in an area and a consolidated health systems in an area, 
I could see that you're not going to necessarily... I mean, there was just that big study in JAMA that showed that insurance companies actually do not reduce the cost of care. So it would almost seem like it would have to be a lockstep kind of thing that would start in certain geographies and then bleed out. Is that how you sort of see this going down? Yeah, I think that a regional approach may happen. So we saw this playing out in North Carolina, where there's a lot of activity led by Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, working with the providers in that market, really trying to get some traction. There is also an alternative, though. And this is where you get companies or leaders or boards to encourage people to operate differently. One of the things that we've seen with not-for-profit systems as well as for-profit systems is this desire to be revenue maximizing, which is saying, if we can negotiate a payer to give me X dollars, why not take that? What if you have a not-for-profit health system that says, we only need X minus 20% to provide that care? While we could negotiate for more, we will take less. And in return, our community benefit will be charging less to the community that we are serving. That is a very and radically different approach where you have a board that pushes executives not to open up a new hospital, but to close facilities that aren't needed, to drive the elimination of high cost care and really focus on lowering the price for the total population. That I've never seen. I've yet to see an organization that will leave any money on the table, even if they are not for profit. But that could be another way is you say, we're just going to take less. And when somebody takes less, others are going to follow them. So we'll see if it is. Yeah, this is the whole, as Vikas Sani says, no margin, no mission is an excuse for all kinds of questionable behavior. That's why that winds up happening, because the business model is to maximize revenues. And this is probably what you were referring to when you mentioned about the business model. What exactly do you mean by business model? When I think about a business model, there's a lot of different definitions. But the one that I like to talk about, it has four components. The first one is the customer value proposition. What is the value that you are providing your customer? And one of the questions that you have to answer with that is, who is your customer? If you ask that to a healthcare provider, you don't always get the answer you'd expect. Most people would say, well, it's the patient. But is it the patient who's really paying? Is it the insurance company? Is it the employer who's buying the insurance? Or is it maybe even the physicians that are bringing patients in that have admitting privileges and are getting people admitted to the hospital or or doing the procedures in the ambulatory surgery center or whomever that is? Who is the ultimate customer for most provider organizations, which is a, a difficult question. I would argue that it should be the patient, but in many cases, the actual customer tends to be either the physician or the insurance companies. So that's the first one, figuring what is the value that you're providing? And is that value preventing illness? Is it identifying high-risk patients and managing them appropriately? Or is it more of a fee-for-service mindset where every procedure, we have a billing code? Effectively, what you're saying is that the value prop, that's going to underpin how the entire organization constructs itself. Because if the ultimate customer is a physician who's trying to drive revenue in a profitable service line, back to your revenue maximization, or if it's the insurance company who's trying to figure out how to maximize their 15%, which some of the audience is going to know very well what I'm talking about right now, then Mm -hmm. you're going to have a health system that its entire structure is built around achieving that objective. Exactly. So I'll just use a couple of examples. One is an EMR. Huge potential to help identify patients to focus on, to do population health management, to do segmentation, all sorts of things that you can do. But if you look at most EMRs at their core, they are a billing system. 
physician sees a patient, we need to identify the appropriate diagnoses so we can get paid for it. And then everything else is kind of built around that. Second one is how do you optimize and train your workforce? Who is it that you recruit for? Who is it that's getting paid the most? How do you train people? Look at in, in many health systems, it's, well, that orthopedic surgeon, we have to keep them happy because they're bringing in all of the revenue. What they've done is optimize the system around filling the heads in the beds. Any sort of a model that you start with influences everything else that you do, your technology, your supply chain, your facilities, your recruitment, your patient ingestion. Everything that you do is built around what that ultimate value proposition is. So if you change that value proposition, then you have the opportunity to develop different resources, processes, and profit formulas. The challenge that I see with a lot of value-based care is that we're not trying to fundamentally change that value proposition. Instead, we're saying, let's start with a fee-for-service healthcare system, and let's pay a little bit different, and then hope that they're going to change their processes, and hope that in the long term, that's going to drive a wholesale change to that core value proposition that they're offering. And we're just not seeing it yet. We see marginal improvements of cost, maybe significant improvements with quality with subpopulations. So for example, if you have a much better diabetic management system in place, that's a process that you've created. You might have better health outcomes with your diabetics. That doesn't fundamentally change the entire organization's approach to their business model. And so that's the challenge that I, I see is that it's really hard to transform a structured business model that's been in place for 50 plus years and replace it with something that's radically different. There have been many pundits who have talked for a long time and loudly about how changing incentives will be a huge part of transforming the health system. Like incentives are the trigger for a business model change. But what I'm hearing you say is that it's a little bit more complicated than that, to the surprise of absolutely no one. There's complexity here. And that it also is going to take a commensurate change on the provider side. They actually, somebody over there, some boards are actually going to have to sit down and say, look, what are we trying to do here? And really think that through. Because if you change the incentives and you have provider organizations who are still all about the Benjamins baby and maximizing revenue and their physicians participating in these high profit service lines are actually their customers, then all of the policymakers are going to be stuck in a vast sea of gamesmanship which seems to happen every single time a policy is created where the policy, the spirit of the policy is completely disregarded as people figure out how to game it in order to continue to make the money that they want to make. Is that kind of what you're saying? It is. The challenge that we have is that we want to have improvement without fundamentally changing how the healthcare system is organized and structured and how it functions. An analogy I, I like to use is you think of a house. Let's pretend that it's a starter home and a family's been living there and they've gone from no kids to two kids. And they're just saying, you know, this isn't working for us anymore. What do we do with that house? Well, you have three options. One is you try to repair it. So this is, let's repaint the walls, put in new flooring. A second option is remodel. Knock out a wall, redo the kitchen. It's a lot more work to remodel a house, but it's still doable and you use that same foundation. A third option is you rebuild from the ground up. You can get what you ultimately want and get what's ideal, but it's incredibly difficult because you still need to live somewhere in the interim and you have significant investment in that house that you're already living in. And that's kind of how I look at companies today. You look at health systems and they say, well, if we were building from the ground up, we probably wouldn't build the exact hospital system or health system that we have today. 
but we haven't. And so a lot of those incentives can lead to people to make repairs. And this is repairs. There are countless things that you can do to improve the current system today. This is the idea of continuous quality improvement. There are millions of opportunities to make things better in healthcare under the current fee-for-service environment. We've got to continue to do that. Remodeling is what some organizations have tried to do, where they've really tried to change how they're getting paid, changing how they are reimbursing physicians, what their focus is. It's a lot of work. It takes a really long time, and there's a lot of risk associated with that. But there are organizations that are trying to do that. The challenge is they have everything they started with. They have their hospital systems with their high fixed costs. They have contracts. They have expectations from their employees and their community. They're starting not from a blank slate. There are also a handful of organizations trying to build things brand new from the ground up. Companies like Landmark and ChinMed, Iora, Oak Street, those sort of organizations that are saying they're building things de novo. And I think it's an open question whether they really are. And if it's not them, there could be others that come on and do that and say, we're going to really rebuild. And so you know, it's that question. We look at the retail. If you go back to 1990, are you going to say, I'm going to try to pick between Sears, Kmart, and Walmart? Or are you going to say, actually, I think a new entrant is going to come in and then five years later, Amazon's on the market. And then you say, it's going to be Amazon that's going to do it. I don't know. I think there are going to be organizations that can make a transformation. I also think there's going to be organizations that try to transform and fail. And I fully expect there are going to be new entrants that come along that do significantly more and different things from the ground up. If, if I'm a, someone who works at a healthcare organization, an existing incumbent or even a startup right now, it sounds like there's, there's a, some steps here that I need to take. The first is to recognize that my business model, the business model of my organization isn't really going to fundamentally change unless I consider changing the value prop of the entire organization. It sounds like first step is certainly to change up the business model to ensure that we are serving patients if that's what we want to do and that everybody in the organization is on board with that, not maximizing revenue, which is just going to incense irrespective of all of the other variables, just that in and of itself is going to incent an organization to go in a direction that is going to, at the end of the day, not inspire the fundamental changes that that organization needs to, to have. Yeah. And just hearing you say that, it sounds crazy because it really is. If you say that we are going to fundamentally change the business model of a company that exists, Many of these are billion-dollar companies, multi-billion-dollar companies, and say we are going to dramatically transform it. There's first, getting alignment is almost impossible. If you have 30,000 employees, you're never going to get everybody aligned. It's going to be hard to get a majority of people aligned with that because there's risk associated with it. A second part is you cannot change this overnight, and you cannot change this over a couple of years. This is a generational commitment for the organization to make this transformation. There is a lot of risk associated with this for the board members, for the leadership within the organization, and it's incredibly challenging. What I believe is that the time that this will happen is when it becomes an existential imperative. There has to be not just a slightly burning platform, but an up in flames platform that's driving this change for most organizations, because it's not something that somebody can do lightly. Yeah, indeed, especially if there are shareholders involved or there are investors involved who may have put their money in because of the earlier business model, which was all about revenue maximization. Exactly. There was a, an earnings call with a for-profit health system CEO who said, we are going to ride this fee-for-service horse until it dies. 
That's the natural incentive. It's simple, it makes sense, and frankly, in the short term, returns significant more value to those shareholders in the short term. It's really hard to think about a 10-year or 20-year horizon for when you expect to see the value return. So let's go back to what you were talking about before. With You have three options if you're trying to transform yourself. One is repair, one is remodel, and one is rebuild. If we have a board or senior executives who are thinking to themselves, yeah, we should be moving in this direction. How do you leverage each one of those different options, the repair model and replace? You know, like I've heard a lot of organizations, how they're actually achieving this is they're opening up a whole separate organization, the whole skunk works thing, right? Like this is straight out of Clay Christensen. If you do have a whole organization that's built around one USP, effectively value prop, Mm -hmm. that it is in fact almost impossible to alter it. So the best way to go about it is to open up a separate one. and build that from the ground up differently. What's your advice here? Again, if if I'm a senior executive at a healthcare system or at an insurer, and there's a lot that listens to the show, and I am trying to figure out how to do right by patients in order to avoid the existential threat even, what, what should I do? You have to look at all three of the things. The repair idea is you need to continually look for opportunities to improve what's in your healthcare system. You know, if you have your ESRD patients that aren't having the outcomes that you're expecting, address it. There's countless opportunities that you can go and improve healthcare. Keep doing that as you're moving along. Second one is think about what it would really take to remodel your healthcare system and think about the time, the stakeholders, the implications for that, and find out how much of a remodel you're willing to do with your core organization. Now, the analogy is maybe you're, re- you're willing to redo the kitchen, but you're not going to knock out and redo all the bedrooms at the same time. So we're just going to focus on part of that and say that's all the appetite we have for the remodel side. The third one, I mean, this is the best idea that I've heard, and it's certainly not perfect, but it is you create that separate organization and build it from the ground up. The hard part is you have to let it operate autonomously with separate expectations, with separate customers, and not have common oversight. Because the legacy organization is going to want to drive it to complement what the legacy organization does. Yeah, I could see that it would be super tempting to be like, oh, but we're going to save money and leverage cross-functional groups. So you do whatever you want over there, but it's going to be the same billing department or the same finance department, which defeats immediately the whole purpose here. There's a famous article by, I think, Peter Drucker that's called The Discipline of Innovation. And this is where it is discipline to go and do these things because it's so easy to just say, well, we're going to make an exception here and there and not and not put in the work that's necessary and put in the safeguards and the firewalls, the discipline to do that. Nothing for nothing. But, you know, Zach Cooper says many times that 1% solutions are still very worthy, just given the size and scope of, of the healthcare industry in this country today, that everybody is, things don't get attention unless they're like the 100% or the 50% solution. But he's like, if we just chip away at this 1% at a time, we're still better off incrementally than we were before. So there's probably, I don't think either of us are disparaging the repair option. It's just, I think what you're saying and or what I'm inferring is if you just repair for too long, you could get smacked in the back of the head by people who went the rebuild route or the build route, not incumbents. And then suddenly you're way behind the eight ball. Another analogy for this is hunter gathering versus farming. If you need to eat today, farming makes no sense at all. 
But if you're preparing so that you can have more food in abundance, you can both do the hunter gathering in the short term while you're also working on that farming for that longer term. And that's that that vision of it, which is short term. Sure. Repair today. Make all those improvements. All of those incremental one percent improvements are going to make a big difference. But at the same time, you need to be making the investments that you expect to start generating fruit. So this is planting the tree so that 10 years from now, it's actually producing what you're going to want to have then. But it's it's committing to that long-term time frame and allowing it to develop over that period. If I am a senior executive that that's listening, David, how do I go about reconsidering this just as a very, very first step? I would say you need to take some time and say, what do you believe about the future? What do you need to prepare for it? And this is not the three-year vision. This is the decade or the multi-decade vision for what you think needs to happen for your organization going forward. That is something that most people are not very good at. And so they need to flex those muscles and get in shape at thinking about the long-term future way beyond their tenure at the organization and start saying, what do we think is likely to happen? And what do we think is really going to help us achieve our mission and start thinking about it? One of the also nice things is that if you're planning for 10 years from now, you don't have to have the plan today. You can work on it for a year and then plant your trees and start to see them grow and and hopefully develop and produce fruit. So it sounds like scenario planning to think through like, okay, in 2032, this whole business could go, we've brainstormed four different ways, right? Then thinking through, if that's our vision of what the future is going to look like, then let's reverse engineer ourselves back from that point to what do we need to do next year in order to ensure that we, by 2032, are going to be the place that we need to be to be viable in that environment. Yes, I think that is important, but you also need to be proactive. So it's not just saying this is what the market is going to force on us and how we're going to respond to it. But it's also saying if we can pass on to future generations a new healthcare system that is much better than what we have today, what would it look like? And how do we begin building it now so that in 20 years, it actually looks like it? And this is this idea where I think that to really lower the total cost of care and healthcare, it's a 30-year process. You really have to think of it in the very, very long term and start building it piece by piece so that you ultimately see that outcome. I like how you put it. This is our legacy that we're leaving behind. Stop waiting for someone to force your hand. Just doing things to maximize revenue that we're all fully aware negatively impact patients, but it's somehow okay versus let's very proactively contemplate what we're going to leave behind and then contribute to that better vision. Exactly. It's a thought game that I like to play with people, which is saying if you were starting from a blank sheet and you could build the American healthcare system that optimizes whatever you most value, what would it look like? Then once you have a vision for what that is, then you can say, well, how do we get from where we are to where we would like to be? But until you know what that vision is, it's really hard to get there. David, is there anything I neglected to ask you? First, I think is one question is, is this doable? And I am a firm believer that it is both doable and it's also an imperative. And for those of us that have decided that healthcare is our career and what our focus on, this is the legacy that we would like to lead. The more people that are thinking about it and working on it and starting to come up with what that vision of what we would like healthcare in 2050 to look like, the better we're going to be. It's not going to be built in a day. We're not building Rome overnight. It's going to be built with significant effort across millions of people across decades of time. And so I think it is possible. But this is, I think, the legacy that we want to leave to future generations is improving this healthcare system that we both depend on and also drives us crazy. 
David Muelstein, is there anywhere where you would direct people to learn about your work or the work of Health Management Association? Healthmanagement.com, my work tends to be published. If you Google my name, you'll find a lot of healthcare articles that I've written, a lot on health affairs. David Muelstein, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It was a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.